Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we come to the preaching of your word, we ask for you, by your spirit, to speak to us in a clear manner, that we might hear your voice and that our hearts might be ready to receive whatever you have to say to us, however you want to minister to us, whether it be with a comforting word or a hard word, help us to respond with faith and obedience. For your glory, we pray these things and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, this morning I get the privilege of concluding our series in the book of Malachi. I get to try to wrap it all up and bring all the various themes together. Now, we had titled this series, Exposing the Dangers of Spiritual Apathy, because that seems to be the overarching issue that the people of God were dealing with in Malachi's day. They had returned years ago from the Babylonian exile. They had resettled Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. And now, well, now they've just been waiting waiting for God's glory cloud to return, waiting for it to fill the new temple and to confirm his presence among them and his favor for them. But, but so far, nothing. No glory cloud, no visible presence, no blessing or prosperity. So in time, they grew disillusioned. What's the point of sacrificing to God? What's the point of keeping our covenants either to God or to our spouses? What's the point of, of giving a tithe? It is vain to serve God. It's pointless. That's what you begin to think when you're spiritually apathetic. Now, what the Israelites wanted, for, wanted was for the day of the Lord to arrive. That's what they were hoping for, the day of his return, for his visible presence to be among them as they heard it was for their forefathers. They were thinking to themselves, I know I'm spiritually apathetic right now, but what would really help out, what would really help me get out of this funk is if God would just show up. If he would come and make his presence felt, then I would get out of this funk and I would be more spiritually devoted to him. That's what they were thinking. And let's be honest. How many times have we thought something similar? That we would get out of our funk. That, that we would get out of our spiritual apathy if only God would, would come and, and appear and make his presence felt. We long for his day of visitation, for the day of the Lord. But I wonder, I wonder if we really know what we're asking for. Are we actually ready for that day to arrive? You see, I, I don't think the Israelites in Malachi's day knew what they were asking for. They thought the day of the Lord would be for them a bright day of deliverance. But instead, for many, Malachi warns that it will be a dark day of judgment. In the book of Amos, another minor prophet, he makes a very similar point when he says in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 19, listen to this. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Just picture that with me. There will be people who anticipate the day of the Lord as this day of deliverance. 
For them, they see themselves as being chased by a lion right now. That's how they interpret the difficulties they're going through in life. And so they're hoping for that final day to be delivered, only then to be confronted by a savage bear. Or, or maybe they make it safe into the house, and then they shut the door, and they bolt it, and so that they're safe from the hungry lion. But when they lean their hand against the wall to catch their breath, suddenly they're bit by a venomous serpent. That, my friends, those evocative images are just ways of describing the utter surprise that many will experience when the day of the Lord does not turn out the way that they expect. Now, yes, for some, the day of his visitation will be a day of rejoicing. For some, it will be a sweet day of deliverance. But the prophets make clear that for others, that same day, that same event will be experienced very differently. It will be a day of judgment and destruction. It's the same day, but two very different experiences. Well, friends, I don't want you to be surprised when that day arrives. I don't want you to be surprised by by what that day will be like for you. My particular burden as a preacher is to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I want to be comprehensive enough and clear enough in my preaching that no one listening can say that they didn't know that the day of the Lord was coming. And no one listening can say that they didn't know that that same day can be experienced in two starkly different ways. And no one listening can say that they didn't know how they might be able to face that fateful day, not as a consuming fire, but rather as a rising sun with the warmth of its light beaming on your face. I want to make sure you know how that day can be a day of deliverance for you. And so come with me into this morning's text to examine this biblical idea of a day of the Lord. First, we're going to see how this day will be a day reserved for fiery judgment. And second, how that same day will be also a day marked by joyful healing. And third, It'll be a day anticipated by remembrance and repentance. So that's where we're going. Let's begin by considering how the day of the Lord will be a day reserved for fiery judgment. That's made clear for us in verse 1. Listen to it again. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now let's recall the context here. This warning is issued for all the arrogant, for all evildoers, all the wicked, as we are told a verse earlier in chapter 3, verse 18, who refuse to serve the Lord. One day, Malachi says, we are going to see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The New Testament reinforces this this idea of a distinction and describes this distinction at the final judgment as a distinction between wheat and weeds or between sheep and goats. That just reinforces the point we've been making that on this fateful day of the Lord, there will be two outcomes. All of humanity will be divided into 
one of two groups. Those who welcome the visitation of the Lord as a sweet day of deliverance and those who discover that day to be a day of fiery judgment. And this judgment, we're told, will burn hot like an oven. And the fuel for that fire, the stubble, will be the arrogant and evildoers. And notice how, how this judgment will be total and, and final. If the wicked were like a tree and God's judgment were like a forest fire, it says neither root nor branch will be spared. The entire tree from top to bottom will be consumed. So there's no hope of regrowth. There are no second chances. The fiery judgment that takes place on the day of the Lord will be final. That's it. Now, it might not shock you to hear an Old Testament prophet speak in this way, speaking of fire and brimstone. But you'll probably be surprised to learn that the one biblical character who had the most to say about final judgment, who had the most to say about hell, was Jesus himself. In fact, he talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And when he talked about hell, he didn't shy away from speaking of fire and brimstone. He described it as a place of eternal torment, of unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die, where people will weep and gnash their teeth. He calls hell a place of outer darkness, comparing it to Gehenna, a trash pit that was outside the walls of Jerusalem where rubbish was dumped and constantly burned, hence the imagery of fiery judgment. That was Jesus' teaching on hell. Now, the other key source of information on the nature of hell comes from us, uh, comes to us in the book of Revelation. I think it's quite fitting that the last book of the Old Testament ends warning us of the day of, about the day of the Lord. And the last book of the New Testament ends by giving us a glimpse of what's going to take place on that fateful day. In Revelation chapter 20, we're given a picture of a great white throne with the Lord sitting on it. And all the dead, great and small, are standing before the throne. And, and also before books. Books which are opened up. Books that have recorded everything we have done in our lives. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Revelation 20, verse 12. Those, my friends are the books of deeds. And each of us has one being written for us ever since the day we were born. Now, we're also told that another book was opened, the book of life. And it sounds very similar to the book of remembrance that we read about last week in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, which contains the names of those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. So if your name is written in that book of life, that book of remembrance, then it means that you are one of the redeemed. Your name is written using the blood of Christ, for he is your redeemer. For by faith, you are one with Christ so that his life is counted as your life and his death is counted as your death. 
So if your name is in the book of life, then at the final judgment, you will be judged not by what's written in your book of deeds, not by what you have done, but by what Christ has done, by what he has mercifully done on your behalf through his life, death, and resurrection. That, my friends, is how you are saved. That's why you go to heaven. But Revelation 20, verse 15, goes on to warn that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If in the entirety of your life, you never repent of your sins and turn to Christ as your redeemer, if you approach the great white throne looking to be judged according to what you have done instead of what Christ has done, then your name won't be found in the book of life. Your book of deeds will be opened up and every page will condemn you. For even your righteous deeds are as filthy rags before our holy God. And to your everlasting shame and sorrow, you will be thrown into the lake of fire. You will be cast into an eternal hell. Friends, I take no pleasure in issuing this warning. No pastor ought to enjoy talking about hell. And yet no pastor who loves his sheep and those whom he is inviting into God's sheepfold is going to avoid the subject out of courtesy. I hope you see that it is love that is compelling me. And that's because it is love that compelled God to even establish a day of the Lord in the first place where there will be a final reckoning. In fact, if God is love, then there must be, by necessity, a hell. If you don't put a final end to all evil, all the violence, all the injustice in the world, when you have it in your power, well, then you are anything but loving. There must be a hell if there is a loving God ruling this world. I think we're mistaken to assume that love and judgment are polar opposites of each other. The opposite of love is not judgment. The opposite of love is indifference. It's the loving parent who will punish a wayward child. It's the indifferent parent who is going to turn a blind eye. The loving judge who loves the law will uphold justice and punish wrongdoers. It's the judge who is indifferent to the law who will treat hardened criminals with leniency. In the same way, it's the God of love who loves righteousness and hates wickedness, who has established a fixed day when everything wrong will be made right, when everything sad will come untrue. There will be a final reckoning. There will be a day of fiery judgment, and not one trace of evil will remain on this earth. On that day, justice will be served. Well, in light of this coming day, I urge those of you 
who have yet to repent of your sins and turn to Christ as your Redeemer, I urge you to believe on him and to be saved. Don't try to stand before the throne resting on what you have done. Instead, receive his grace and rest on what Christ has done on the cross. Hide in him to escape the fiery judgment bearing down on you and on your sins. That's going to be your only hope. And I urge you to not delay, to do that today. Now, friends, let's shift gears and let's consider now the day of the Lord from a different perspective. From the perspective of those who have repented and believed, from those who are trusting in the finished work of Christ, whose names are written in the book of life, for those who do fear God's name, that day will be a day marked by joyous healing. Let me read verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. For those who fear God, the day of the Lord will not be like a consuming fire, but more like a shining sun. What will be experienced as unquenchable fire for one set of people will be experienced by another set as the refreshing warmth of the sun. Recall how back in chapter 3, the, the day of God's coming is associated with fire, but in that case, it was the refiner's fire. It's a fire intended to refine God's people, to purify them. That just reminds us how fire, fire can be used in more than just one way. It could be used, of course, to torment and destroy, but it can also be used to purify and to heal. So when it says in verse 2 that the sun shall rise with healing in its wings, that, that healing there can best be understood in terms of refining. On the day of the Lord, we'll be healed in the sense of purified and refined into an unblemished and glorified state of being. The Apostle Paul builds on this very idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. There he says, that Jesus Christ is the foundation for the church in Corinth, and he is the foundation for the life of every single believer. Church planners and evangelists like Paul are the ones who help lay that foundation through their respective ministries. But now it is up to individual Christians who are responsible to build on that foundation using the bricks of love and good deeds produced by faith and obedience. Listen closely. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So that, brothers and sisters, will be our experience on that fateful day of the Lord. We will all go through the fire, not a consuming fire of final judgment, but the refiner's fi fire 
of final sanctification. On that day, we will be completely healed from the sickness of sin. All traces of, of sin and sin's corrupting effect on our body, mind, and soul will be burned away. All the wood, hay, and straw of life that we have been wasting our time on will just go up in flames. And all the gold, silver, and precious stones of life, those deeds of love and mercy, those meaningful relationships with fellow Christians, those acts of faith and obedience that contributed to kingdom work and human flourishing, those things will remain as a testament, testament to God's glory and as a source of our joy in heaven. And yes, there will be joy for us for eternity in heaven, but even also on that terrible day of the Lord, there will be joy. Look at the end of verse 2. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So like leaping calves, we will overflow with joy on that day. But in our leaping, our feet will at the same time tread down the wicked. In other words, what we will experience as joyful healing will be experienced as a fiery judgment for the wicked. Now, that juxtaposition of the Christian's joy in the very same moment as the wicked's judgment has long perplexed the faithful. How will I be able to rejoice knowing that people I care about will be judged by fire on that very same day? How can heaven be a place of eternal joy for me if I know that some of my loved ones will be experiencing eternal torment? How can you experience both? How can, how can that be? Well, last summer, I read a sermon by Jonathan Edwards with a number of you in our Edwards Book Club. It was called The End of the Wicked, Contemplated by the Righteous. And it was a sermon based on Revelation chapter 18, verse 20, where the saints are called to rejoice over the judgment of Babylon, which in Revelation, Babylon represents the unbelieving world in opposition to God. So Revelation 18, verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her, against Babylon. Now Edwards goes on to argue that this rejoicing of ours on the day of the Lord won't be a rejoicing out of a spirit of vengeance or out of a place of pride, but rather it will be a rejoicing in seeing God's justice executed and in seeing the love and the tenderness of God towards us manifested in his severity towards those under judgment, knowing very well that we deserve the exact same judgment and we would be in their shoes, but for the grace of God. That's what we will be responding to on that day. In The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, which, again, was another book club that a number of you guys were a part of, C.S. Lewis argues that the happiness of heaven won't be held hostage by the suffering of hell. 
in one chapter, there's this woman in heaven who has an encounter with her husband who has up to that point been in hell. Now, the narrator notes that the woman seems somewhat aloof and unsympathetic to her husband who is clearly in pain. He's still nursing some wound that she had caused him in their previous life together. But the the heavenly tour guide explains that the wounded egos of those in hell can never override the joys of heaven. If the saints in heaven can never be truly happy because of the fate of those who had rejected the source of true happiness while in this life, then hell would have veto power over heaven. But that can't be. That doesn't fit the Bible's portrait of heaven and our eternal happiness there. And even before we get to heaven, just think of how much joy and peace we can experience right now because we do believe that our sovereign good God will not allow a single injustice in this world to go unpunished. I mean, just think about it. If there was no final judgment, well, then I can see myself becoming a rather bitter person. What if someone was to deeply hurt me? And, and what if this person never acknowledges the offense or never tries to make amends? If I have no belief in there being a final reckoning, well, then I have to just accept the possibility that this person's offense against me might go forever unaddressed. If that is truly my worldview, then I wouldn't be surprised if I ended up a bitter person or a vengeful person. But if I believe the Lord to be a holy and just God who will never allow a single sin to go unpunished, then I can leave justice and vengeance in his hands. I can let go of my bitterness. I can let go of my desire for revenge, knowing that every offense ever perpetrated will be punished in one of two ways, either on the cross in the death of Christ or on the day of the Lord in a fiery judgment. And personally, I know that the cross is my only hope. The cross of Christ is the only reason I can look forward to the day of the Lord as a day of deliverance. And friends, I want you also to have that same confidence to face that fateful day as a day of deliverance. And to that end, let's consider our third point about how this day of the Lord will be a day anticipated by remembrance and repentance. I'm going to argue that you prepare for the day of the Lord by listening to the law and the prophets. And their general message is to remember God's law and to repent for your failure to keep it. That's how Malachi concludes his prophecy. Look with me at verse four. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, the mention there of these two biblical characters, Moses and Elijah, is quite intentional. 
in the Bible, Moses represents God's law, having served as its mediator. God's people received the law through him. And in the Bible, Elijah epitomizes the ministry of the prophets, those who served as God's spokesman, speaking his words to his people, and their message primarily centered on repentance. They were calling God's wayward people back to the Lord. Now, I think it's unfortunate that we often picture the prophets as bearers of bad news, prophesying doom and destruction. When in fact, the burden of their message was repentance for God's people to return their hearts back to the Lord. So all that bad news that you find in their prophecies was really intended to serve as a warning to expose their spiritual condition and to prod them and prick them, leading them to repentance. It's ultimately seeking for their hearts to come back to the Lord. So Malachi ends with a reminder of Moses and how the people have been apathetic towards keeping the law. And it also ends with a prediction that Elijah the prophet will come before this great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and Elijah will preach repentance, just as he did back in the book of 1 Kings, and he will help turn people's hearts back to one another, starting within each family. Now, because of this particular passage, and because in Scripture, Elijah is not recorded as having died, but rather we're told that he was taken up to heaven by a chariot of fire, And so that's why many Jews at the time of the New Testament believed that Elijah himself would return and he would precede the coming of the Messiah, that he would function as that messenger that was referenced in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, who would prepare the way of the Lord. But if we keep on reading after Malachi chapter 4 on into the New Testament, into the Gospels, well, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus explains that John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come. Now, how is that possible? Was he a reincarnation of Elijah? No, it it simply means that he came in the spirit of Elijah. Because in Luke chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, the angel Gabriel explains to John the Baptist's father, telling him, even before his son was conceived, that, quote, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. Now, when John was actually born, his father was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied in Luke chapter 1, verses 76 to 79, that his son, quote, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, Whereby, listen, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Uh, Friends, that sunrise imagery is a clear reference 
to our passage. John's message will be a message of joyful healing, of the tender mercies of God, of the forgiveness of our sins. But at the same time, his message, like Elijah's, was also a message of repentance. He baptized Jews who recognized their apathy with a baptism of repentance. And he warned them to prepare for the Lord's coming, to make your heart ready for the arrival of the Lord's anointed, his Messiah, the Christ. Because when the Christ come, John warns, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So like Malachi, John the Baptist's message was this juxtaposition of both deliverance and judgment, of joyful healing and fiery judgment. Now think with me, friends, of how all of this fits together. Malachi's message is that you prepare for the day of the Lord by listening to Moses and Elijah. You listen to the law and prophets. Well, when John arrives in the spirit of Elijah, he builds upon that message by saying, you prepare for the day of the Lord by listening to the Christ who comes after him. He whose sandals he is unworthy to tie. And there's this scene later on in Luke's gospel in chapter 9 where Jesus takes Peter, John, and James up to a mountain to pray. And quote, As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter is, is completely baffled by what he's seeing here. And so he starts speaking without thinking, talking about making three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. And we'll just have this jolly good time camping out on top of this mountain. When suddenly a cloud overshadows them. And while Peter is in mid-sentence, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. Friends, that's the message of the law and the prophets. To listen to the son of God. And he'll tell you how to prepare for that great and awesome day of the Lord. If you've ever wondered why it was Moses and Elijah who appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, well, now it makes sense. It's because they represent the law and the prophets, which the law and the prophets was a very common phrase to speak of the entire Old Testament. That's the point, friends. The entire Old Testament, including the book of Malachi, points to Jesus and his departure to his death and resurrection. As I've been trying to make clear and to make certain in this entire sermon, the only way to prepare for the day of the Lord and to experience it as a joyous day of healing and deliverance is to listen to Jesus 
especially when he tells us to believe in him, to trust in his death and resurrection as your only hope in life and death. Friend, if you're not certain what that day is going to be like for you, then the good news is that the full assurance of faith, the certain belief that you will be delivered, it can be yours if you repent and believe. If you do that today, salvation is yours if you put your hope in Jesus today. Let me pray for you. Oh, Father, please grant all who are listening the eyes to see Jesus as the Son of God, the great Redeemer, as the one who will prepare us for the day of the Lord through his departure, through his death and resurrection. I pray that all of us will have the full assurance of faith, knowing that on that day, it will be a joyous day, a day of healing, a day of deliverance, a day of salvation. I pray for anyone that we know who at this point has not repented and believed. May you give us a burden to share your good news, to share of the hope of eternal joy with Christ to them. Give us an opportunity even this week to do that. We pray, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.